Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Hi, welcome to So That Happened, um, the podcast where HuffPost DC tells you all the things that happened this past week. It is normally hosted by Jason Lincolns and Zach Carter, but unfortunately, they are busy buying concert tickets, so I, Elise Foley, um, am here to talk to you instead. We're talking about the DHS thing. We're already recording. Are I we... started without you. Oh, that's cool. So that happened. This week, the fight over President Barack Obama's immigration policies returns to the halls of Congress, with opponents of the president's executive actions threatening to cease funding for the Department of Homeland Security. Is this a smart idea? Of course not. Meanwhile, potential Republican presidential candidate Jeb Bush went through the ancient campaign ritual of giving a foreign policy philosophy speech to prove that he cares about foreign policy and ancient rituals. Did you notice that Jeb Bush has the same last name as another president with a foreign policy? Because this was the week that every political reporter finally noticed this. Finally, Elizabeth Warren has been having what we are told are world historical chit-chat sessions with people like former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and current Fed Chairwoman Janet Yellen. What do these meetings augur? Well, none of us were present at the meetings, so we'll do what media experts call guessing. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Elise Foley. Here's what happened first. Okay, hey, happy Saturday. Welcome once again to another edition of So That Happened, the podcast that talks about things that happened in the past. I'm Jason Lincolns. Joining me today is our our friend... Zach Carter from the Huffington Post. Did you not know his name? <laughs> I, yeah, that's part of this. He, he forgot my awesome. It's title. like, who are you people that I've worked with for years? And okay, giving it away. Also with us today, Elise Foley, also of the Huffington Post. Right, the internet's Elise Foley is here. Right, that's right. The top millennial on Twitter. Which is what's <laughs> I like to think T-Mot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's a T-Mot. You know. Real celeb shit we got going on up in this place. Um, so how's everyone doing? Uh, I've had a terrible week. It's really cold in D.C., and so my hands have been cracking, and that just kind of hurts. My dog has been going nuts because she wants to be out in the snow constantly because it snowed in D.C., and she's kind of a snow dog. Yeah. Bad movie, but a good thing in life. So I just have to spend all day outside, uh, uh, and, and I'm kind of tired and want to take a break. I'm glad we have the temerity to at least criticize snow dogs on the show. That's really important, mm-hmm. Elise. I'm doing well. No yeah. complaints. Short week, so I'm happy. That's right. We are coming off the holiday President's Day or something. President's Day. Right, because it's just like presidents need more fucking attention. It is a short week. <laughs> at least, didn't you write like six stories already this week? I um, wrote, I believe, four stories in a 24-hour period from late Monday to like Five o'clock on Tuesday. So then I decided I shouldn't have to do anything else for the rest of the week. But our bosses disagree. Yeah. They, so here I am. What's the freaking nap room for? I mean, they give us that thing and then they tell us we can't sleep in it. Show of hands, who's actually taking a nap in the nap room? I've taken a nap. Well, you shouldn't do hands on a podcast, I, well, first of all. I'm cultivating the mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I've only taken a nap in the meditation room, which I think is better for napping. The meditation room, I, we're going so deep inside the weird office. We we're have. really embarrassing right, the, ourselves and all of Huffington Post. I, I, just call, I just call the meditation room the fluffy room because everything in that room is so fluffy, and I'm worried that like I will hurt it if I sit on it. I tried to sleep in the like, hammock that we have, but I couldn't sleep because I just kept thinking about Paul Ryan and the safety net. <laughs> Remember how he said the safety net is turning into a hammock? That's kind of funny because I, I, I keep thinking about like Gilligan's Island when I look at the hammocks. <laughs> And I think about it, it's like, why was it that, like, everyone on Gilligan's Island except those two dudes had beds? 
like why did they choose to sleep in hammocks? I was like, what the fuck? Did they not have enough raw materials to make two more beds? Also, why didn't they just tweet somebody and tell them that they were stranded? Seriously. I, yeah. A lot of plot holes in Gilligan's Island, I think. But um, to, to uh, let's pick up the plot a little bit more specifically. So um, this week we've uh, entered what I think is like kind of like the overhang from the Cromnibus, which we talked about on podcast pass um which is the new fight over funding DHS so the the background on this is that as we if you've been if you've been listening to our podcast right along and hopefully you have you you understand we, we talked about this thing called the Cromnibus which is a funding bill that was critical to pass um at during the lame duck session and one of the things that helped it to pass was that everyone sort of made this agreement that they were not going to touch DHS funding. They weren't going to include DH funding in the Cromnibus. And the reason that they didn't do that is because of the contentiousness that's uh, that's 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 uh, swollen up from President Obama's decision to kind of like take on the immigration battle through a series of executive orders. Republicans don't want to fund that. Uh, to get the rest of the government funded, they sort of like punted during the Cromnibus period, but this was always sort of waiting to like come back and trip everyone up. And so that's what's happening this week. Am I right? Right. Here we are. <laughs> Everybody knew that the deadline was going to be February 27th. Um, people were hoping that they wouldn't just go right up to the deadline, but Congress in its typical fashion appears to be, um, you know, planning to really cut this one close there's really no end in sight is the thing that's concerning for, um, you know, funding DHS. Republicans have really d- dug in their heels that it has to – any funding bill has to have something to stop these immigration executive actions. Democrats say, no, we're not passing – we're not voting for anything that does anything like that. Obama has said he'd veto it. So what we're looking at now is maybe somebody caves um, – or there's a shutdown, or there's just another continuing resolution. We fight again about this in two months. Um, And, you know, just recycle. I'll just copy my stories from now and run them again. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. (laughs) We make out great when this stuff happens. But uh, we'll get to the shutdown in a minute. But, like, let's let's also talk specifically about the immigration orders and what, what they're supposed to accomplish and what the objection is. Right. So they're not technically executive orders. Um, They're just sort of a series of policies that the president laid out. And so the most contentious one is this new program that will allow people who are parents of U.S. citizens or legal permanent residents to stay in the U.S. um, and work for three years. And then, you know, they'd be able, if the program continued, they'd be able to reapply and renew. So that... um, is something that Republicans say was completely beyond Obama's authority. He's not allowed to give work authorization, they say, um, to people who are here undocumented. The other component um, that's also been contentious and has been for a while is his Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which does basically the same thing for people who came to the U.S. when they were younger. So Republicans have been trying to do away with that since it started in 2012, haven't had any success now Obama is expanding it or trying to expand it even further, and they are, you know, saying that that no, we're not, we're not okay with that. We're not going to let that happen. So it's just it, it's sort of a, a few different things, but I would say those are the two most contentious. Is just this idea of giving work authorization to people who they say, look, they shouldn't be here in the first place, much less working. Well, how does defunding the Department of Homeland Security, and to be specific, when we say DHS, that's what we're talking about. How does defunding or or imperiling the funding, uh, the, the continuing funding of DHS, put a stop to these executive orders? Is there some kind of money flow that's aiding the enforcement of what Obama wants to do? Not really. So these programs are going to be fee-funded. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program I mentioned, DACA, is fee-funded. So you apply to um, get, you know, your background check and all of that that they need to process your application. So since the agency within DHS that does this um, is fee-funded, it kind of looks like it would continue regardless, even if there was a shutdown. Um, so a lot of it, I think, is is um, about sending a message and saying, no, we're not going to fund DHS unless you do what we want, 
even though a shutdown wouldn't really do what they want either. This seems bonkers to me. I, I, like, if they can't get what they want from shutting down DHS, why would they shut down DHS? Is, is there... Well, they say they don't... I mean, they would say they don't want to shut down DHS. Sure, they'll say Nobody's Obama saying, is making us shut down the DHS. Right, they're not saying, right. we want to shut down DHS to stop this from happening. They see this as a leverage point that they can use on the president. Jonathan Chait calls it the dumbest idea they've had yet in terms of that. But when we're talking about a shutdown. Are we talking about something that's going to shut the entire government down or just? No, it would just be DHS and it actually wouldn't be a lot of DHS. So last time there was a shutdown, I think about 85 percent of people who work for DHS kept working. The problem is that these people aren't getting paid. And, you know, I, I don't know about either of you, but I would not like to not get a paycheck. I mean, you're going to work and you're doing a job that, you know, people are rude to TSA agents. I love being able to trade for goods and services in a capitalist economy. That's just like <laughs> yeah. my thing. These A lot of people who are, you know, immigration agents, TSA agents aren't making big bucks. You, If you're trying to support your family, you don't want to just go without a paycheck. So it's not a good way to be treating people. And also there are things that even if people are working, things behind the scenes that aren't going to get done in the event of a shutdown. So you wouldn't have um, training centers open that train local law enforcement in certain things. Grants wouldn't be funded. There are all these things that people might not realize because they're still going to the airport and still seeing people. Um, they don't realize are you know a side effect of this DHS shutdown. But ultimately, I mean, the borders are not going to be open if DHS shuts down. People are not going to be getting on planes without being checked. Immigration will, is not going to stop deporting people. So it's it's going to continue basically everything in the event of a shutdown, except for you know these these things that are important, but kind of behind the behind the scenes. So so we lose like say 10 or 15% of, of DHS though. I mean the, the point you made about people not getting paid after the shutdown that we had it's, I guess it's been a couple of years now. I mean the, the government has said that they most agencies have said that they are having trouble obtaining and retaining good employees because they're afraid that some stupid thing is going to happen and their job will get held hostage again. I mean this seems to be just repeating a cycle that you know of of you know people complaining the government doesn't work and then shooting government in the foot and, and making sure that it, it will not work in the future. And DHS, I believe, has the worst morale of any federal um, de- any department. So putting this on DHS employees, especially, they've been trying. You know, within the department, they say they've been trying to improve morale. I, I just think think about how much people dislike DHS age. I mean, people who. If they get shut down, they're going to have to do so many trust falls. Yeah, it's it's not going to improve. I I just think like immigration agents, right, like people who are on the left hate them because they say they're separating families. People who are on the right hate them because they say they're not doing their jobs and deporting enough people. If you're TSA, people are cranky at you all day and mean to you. If you're a border agent, you're, you know, sometimes risking – your life and out there. I, it's not a job that fosters great morale anyway, but going in and finding out that you're not going to get paid and that the government, Congress doesn't care enough about you and the work that you're doing and doesn't value it enough to think that it's worth paying you on time. I just, I can't imagine. I would be, I would be livid if I worked here and they did that to me. I think the most bonkers thing about it is what you just talked about, how there'd also be like almost no visibility of a problem if DHS could shut down, which kind of impacts the whole like the politics in this attempt to try to like sow public opinion against this. It's like if they don't – people don't notice anything is wrong, then Republicans aren't going to win that battle. At least when we shut down the government, people said, oh, look, the government shut down. I can't go to a park. I can't do this. They noticed it. So the last time the government shut down, Mitch McConnell had been saying a lot, you know, don't shut the government down. This is a bad idea. He sort of came in and was the – you know, had had his little moment in the sun when – when the government reopened because he helped cut a deal. Has there been any tension between the different chambers of, of, of Congress over this since Republicans control each one? There has. So uh, the House Republicans passed something to fund DHS and all of Obama's immigration policies, basically, not just the ones that I was mentioning before, but a ton of them going back to 2011, just even on how they prioritize who to deport. Their bill um, funded DHS, but while doing all of that, that's something that's absolutely dead on arrival at the White House, if it could even get there. 
So they passed it last month. They said, okay, we've done our thing. Um, it's on to the Senate. Uh, they have held, I believe, three votes on on that bill in the Senate. Democrats have blocked it from going forward every single time. They've stayed completely united, also picked up Dean Heller, um, who's a Republican from Nevada. So they um, have blocked it from moving forward. And now Mitch McConnell has said, this is clearly not working. We clearly can't get this passed. We don't have the votes, which is just sort of a statement of fact. House is, the House is kind of, it's up to the House what we do now. Uh, the problem is, you know, they so they've kicked it back to the House, said, realistically, we can't pass your bill. And the House comes back and says, we acted. It's up to you. You need to f- convince Democrats to vote for it. So, you know, b- people saying, oh, well, you should just keep them in 24 hours until they pass it. I don't think that if you keep Democrats in constantly, you're going to break, <laughs> crack enough of them that you're going to be able to get this bill passed. I don't think that the president would sign a bill like the one the House passed. So right now, you know, the Republicans in the Senate tried to kick it back. Um, House Democrat or House Republicans are showing just really no interest in presenting a plan B at this point. I mean, you can see why Democrats would, even if they're, say, you know, some, I hate the way people use the word moderate, but like conservative-ish Democrats who maybe are more sympathetic to the Republican position on, on immigration, um, they still don't want to be in a position where Republicans are allowed to sort of take hostages on funding bills like this. That's that's has not worked out well in the past, and it, it creates it sets a really bad precedent for Democrats going forward since they don't control either chamber of uh, of Congress. You know, the next time there's any sort of any sort of deadline coming up for Congress, they'll just be like, okay, and uh, repeal Dodd Frank and Obamacare and you know whatever else. Well, world's greatest deliberative body, though. So uh, elsewhere this week, 2016 continues to happen in 2015. Nothing we can do to stop it. We just have to lay back and pretend we enjoy this. But <laughs> you well, do enjoy this. You do enjoy this. Do I? It. You love hating on it. I kind of do. You're Every right. year you're like, oh, yes, now I can dump on another presidential election. There's a lot to dump on. There's a lot to <laughs> dump on. Uh, it goes on too damn long and everyone's. Really silly. Sam Stein was talking about a story that you know, someone wrote that was like, Scott Walker had a dinner with supply-side economists. And I was like, so what? I mean, <laughs> like, Scott Walker ate with conservatives. I was like, what the, who the fuck do you think Scott Walker eats with? <laughs> you know, it'd be like Joe weird. Stiglitz. He sits down with <laughs> Joe Stiglitz and Thomas Piketty. <laughs> like, that would be news. If, like, Scott Walker, like, sat down with those dudes, I'd be like, wow, that's weird. What did he tell them? <laughs> Joe Stiglitz would be like, hey, everyone's fucked. <laughs> You're no different. Okay, but but like I think the biggest the biggest thing that happened this week was we um we sort of like continued Jeb Bush's semi ambivalent rollout of his presidential campaign. And like the key issue this week was um I don't know if it's just that everyone decided this was the week we'd noticed this. Um, but like everyone, you didn't come to the journalism meeting where we no, voted on that. No, I, I sleep. Yeah, we had I, a I East sleep. Coast media elite party. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were like, this is the week. <laughs> this is the week. I, this I guess is the I, week now. We're I guess I missed. I guess I missed that memo. But this is the week that everyone's just like, wow, did you guys notice that like he's got the same last name and DNA as two other presidents? How will he get shot of that? And it's like, I mean. To the extent that he can, he just won't, right? Well, I will say in terms of people talking about it this week, I think part of it was that he announced his list of, you know, his preliminary foreign policy team. And it overlapped so much, um, you know, with with his dad and his brother. So I think that that's part of it in defensive media. I mean, so in good the good news, (laughs) I'll say this. I'll say this. The good news uh, is that, like, I didn't see the name Douglas Fife on this list. And that's like... I don't know. I mean, that is like evidence of like the Bush family being able to like apply knowledge and use it to do something wait, discriminating by think, keeping an idiot like Doug Fife off the team. But there's still a lot of like there's still a lot of like Iraq War era cockroaches Wolfowitz. on that list. Paul Wolfowitz right, yeah. is on that list. Yeah. He's the guy who said that the war would pay for itself with Iraqi money, <laughs> with the Iraqi oil. He's a giant. I mean, he's he's one of those people. The, the, the thing. People can complain all they want about President Obama's current uh, foreign policy in the Middle East. I think there's plenty to plenty to critique. Libya's total disaster. Like, there's a lot of bad stuff happening. 
not obvious the U.S. response wasn't been sufficient engagement with the Iraqi government at all. Sure, all, all sorts of things you could you could you could criticize. The Iraq invasion in 2003 is the dumbest thing that the United States has done, at least since Vietnam. It may be a big, maybe a much bigger, may end up being a bigger catastrophe than than Vietnam uh, ultimately historically. Um, the fact that people like that, people who are central decision makers from that disaster, are still not even not just like allowed within the sphere of like you know, acceptable public dialogue, but are actually being tapped as advisors to presidential candidates, I find completely appalling. But I, there's no other way to put it. I just find it appalling. We've seen this before. Like, it's really weird, but, like, sort of the culture of, like, D.C. and policymaking is that, like, when a group of people fuck something up, it's like, well, those are the guys we got to get to solve this fuck up. They're the ones who have intimate awareness with their fuckery. They're the only ones who can unravel it. I mean, that's the same. I mean, to be honest, that's the same reason we keep getting the same kind of like economic people back in Democratic administrations. And it's like, you know, it's like this weird kind of like insular culture where there's probably like a universe of people out there who have ideas and can do a job. But you never hear about them because these cosseted elites continue to like rise again into the positions that they failed in time and time again. I mean, this is like, to me, this is like in micro, the the Antonio White story. Mm. It's just like, oh, well, Obama wants this dude from Lazard to, to head domestic finance at Treasury, even though he has got no domestic finance experience and he's like a mer- international mergers and acquisitions guy and Lazard's going to pay him a retention fee even though they're not going to retain him. You know, so it looks shady as hell. And people are just, a lot of people are just like, well, he's really smart. He's really smart. And I was like, is he like the only really smart dude? <laughs> like, there's not a single other person who can do this who doesn't have like these like weird, shady problems. Like, are we stuck with this guy? Right. And, and there, there are people, at least on the economic side, which I know a little better than the foreign policy side. By a little better, I mean a lot better. Um, <laughs> the, the the economic side of things. I mean, there are people in like on the Senate Banking Committee who compile lists of people who would be you know acceptable types of candidates, and they do present those lists to people in the administration, and the administration then does whatever the hell they want. Um, but but it, it, there is this sort of strange club, and I don't really understand the the sort of primate dominance rituals and and like social dynamics that create the club. But but if you're not part of the club. You just don't get considered. And so even people who are well-qualified who have been in prior administrations, like, say, Joe Stiglitz, who was you know, in Clinton's administration but has been very critical of many of the policies that the administration ultimately adopted, he's not in the club. So you've got to find these other sort of banking-type people who can be considered part of the club. And anybody who is an open critic of, of uh, certain types of policies just doesn't, doesn't count, no matter what their actual policy track record is. You know, the, the stuff that Joe Stiglitz can claim responsibility for has actually worked pretty well. Unlike the stuff that, you know, the, the, the sort of core team of Rubenites and, and financial wizards uh, that the Democrats tend to rely on. Yeah, one of the, one of the illuminating quotes, because there's been so much written about Bush's foreign policy team uh, this week. Um, <laughs> and we'll talk about the ritual of, like, having a foreign policy speech in a minute. But, like, one of the most illuminating quotes I read was uh, was, a, was a Bush advisor who, who said that, like, Bush had to, like, have a big tent approach – to his foreign policy team, because to exclude the people who fucked up Iraq would be to affirm what he called the cartoon critique of the Iraq war. Mm. And I'm just like, the Iraq war was a cartoon of malfeasance and incompetence. Like, not only was the war carried out poorly without regard for uh, the, the people that they were going to be left to care for, but... From the from the standpoint of administrating the post war environment, it was ridiculous. So much money was wasted on stupid infrastructure projects that never came about. Um, money was just generally like lost, pissed away. It was not by any stretch of the imagination a well managed thing. Uh, and I mean, there was there was a scene in um, I think. Uh, Rajiv's book, uh, Imperial Life in the Emerald City, where literally like a, a bed full of money, just like or a suitcase full of money just disappears. Yeah. Just literally just the money just disappears. Yeah. There's I mean, <laughs> there's so there's so many great books written about the management of the post-war environment. Uh, uh, Rachel Rachel Maddow wrote a book called Drift about it. 
Uh, Peter Van Buren wrote a book called We Meant Well, and that was the guy who was on the front lines of managing this. I was even That's reading... a great title. We Meant Well, yeah, exactly. It's a really good title. Yeah, it's a great book. It's a great book. I was even reading uh, Phil Clay's uh, recent book of short stories about the Iraq War called Redeployment, uh, which is a fantastic book, which is it's a wonderful it's a wonderful uh, short story compilation. People should run out and buy it. Redeployment, Phil Clay, K-L-A-Y. And the best the best story he told was the one about the team of people who are trying to, like, spend money on Iraqis. You know, they, it was like this absurd – this, no, this is fictional, but there was, like, an absurd situation where, like, some – pokey-nosed senator wanted Iraqis to play baseball, and so they funded the shipment of baseball equipment to Iraq. And, and like, he, the guy administering was left left saying, I'm not going to be able to get fucking Iraqi kids who are starving and, like, living in squalor to play baseball. It's ridiculous. And, but, but, like, th- but to be clear, that's fictional, but you were complaining about a thing American, that did though. not happen, though. It's not, yeah, that's <laughs> the thing that not happened. But, like, honestly, when you've read some of the actual non-fictional accounts, and then you read Phil Clay's story. It's it's like... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, this is a guy who's really writing what he knows. Um, but let's get into the, the ritual of like a guy runs for president and he's got to give a series of speeches. It's kind of silly, right? Yes, I think so. And uh, I mean, especially I, I get he's so he's trying to prove, right, that he has foreign policy cred, even though he was a governor, which, you know, didn't deal with foreign policy. He had a part in his speech where he just sort of listed places he's been in the world. Right. Um, <laughs> and then he also, you know, has yeah. this big foreign policy team that's to show like, look, I have smart foreign policy people. They're like, you know, sort of drawn from all over and don't give a clear sense of his actual worldview. Um, but he sort of just had to give that speech, I guess, to show that foreign policy is something that he cares about. Um, and he is able to make you know, vague criticisms of Obama and offer no real specific policy ideas of his own, at least in the speech. Uh, you know, those aren't necessarily a good place to lay out complicated yeah. <laughs> plans. But still, I mean, just saying like, oh, we need to uh, not apologize and do better and be strong. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. that sounds good. I mean, it's weird. <laughs> sure. It's weird because like we come to this point and then we start talking about, oh, it's the so-and-so doctrine. Uh, and, and like I was kind of like looking for signs that there was like a Jeb doctrine, not a Bush doctrine. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't see much distinctions between it. Of course, everything is all relative. I mean, I was saying earlier today that I thought for a time I had a fix on what maybe the Obama doctrine was foreign policy and foreign policy wise was. I thought I knew what it was. And then the Libya invasion blew up any preconception I had of what I thought. It no was pun about. intended. Yeah, no uh, pun intended. The, yeah, then I was just like, well, you know, you know, maybe maybe we're all fools for thinking that like years out, years away from actually having our hand in the muck, we can like say, oh, I know what this guy's doctrine is. You know, but but look, I mean, this has been a problem I think in conservative foreign policy for a while because pe- conservatives have critiqued, I think sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly, uh, Obama's policy in in the Middle East. Um, but the solution when it comes up, you'll read places like, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial page. The solution they have is like, actually, we need to go back to having like 150,000 troops on the ground in Iraq. That's that's like the only that's the only plausible 
uh, solution to 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 dealing with the problems they're talking about. They'll say, well, you know, Obama should have left behind, uh, you know, it, there should have been some sort of residual force left in Iraq, like you know, ten thousand troops or something. Well, you know, we had one hundred fifty thousand troops around the surge. That's that that's what if you if you credit the surge with solving things, that's one hundred fifty thousand ground troops that you're going to need. And the situation's obviously a lot more unstable now than it was in two thousand six or even two thousand seven with you know, other governments toppling and stuff. So you're talking about a huge, huge war commitment, and nobody ever just comes out and says it. What what they you know that the the, the implied critique of Obama is we should be we should have a massive war effort with boots on the ground all the time in the Middle East. Right. And, and that was something that struck me like a lot of what Bush articulated sounded costly to me. Yes. I, I mean, I think a lot of Republicans don't mind spending money on military stuff. When they're when they're holding the White House, they right. spend money like crease, like like it's going out of style. Right. But yeah, who cares if we're adding to the deficit? But the that. thing, the thing with Jeb is that, like, first of all, I don't know how you get to what he wants to do foreign policy wise without raising taxes, because because there's only so much you can cut from the domestic discretionary spending. And remember, Jeb Bush is a guy who, at least in his sort of policy portfolio, is someone who ostensibly believes that government does have a role in vital domestic policies. He has an interest in immigration. He has an interest in education. And whether or not we agree with those policies or not, we can agree on the fact that to implement them, he will need to have money. And he can't, and it becomes dicey if he's also spending X number of hundreds of billions of dollars on these weird foreign escapades. Right. But so those two things are part of his problem, right, in terms of Republican primary voters. He's been out there saying things about immigration reform, saying things about education that maybe some conservatives aren't going to like. So that's why he has to use something like foreign policy and say, no, look, I'm I'm one of you guys. You should like me. Look, I'm not like a, a big moderate that you can't trust. I agree with you. It's it's all fine. So I think that that's sort of the point of this is he has to show his conservative cred somewhere. It, it's possible that maybe the base understands that he won't be able to like implement Common Core if he's really doing these things overseas. But I do want. I mean, well, I, I didn't mean it in that complex a way. Sure, sure, okay. I yeah. just meant you know it, to give them some red meat. Right. Oh yeah. Sure. I understand. To counter what counter what yeah. you know the but other I, views of him. I, I kind of wonder though if that if, if that kind of if, if the war all the time message actually resonates with the GOP base. I mean, I know it, it resonates with people who are Iraq War, you know, enthusiasts, but I don't know how many of them there really. Are. I mean, I'm sure there 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 are some in the GOP base, but like a lot of the stuff that we think of as appealing to conservatives inside the Beltway doesn't actually appeal to conservatives outside of the Beltway. You know, a lot of the stuff about the, the sort of there are plenty of conservatives in Congress who are in favor of subsidizing large corporations and banks and things like that. And you ask, you know, Republicans in Oklahoma, they say they hate that stuff. Um, and I wonder how, how effective – if this is a play to, 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 you know, to get the base to trust, to trust Jeb, I wonder if it works. It's, to me, it seems like it, it would resonate more with the foreign policy establishment in, um, in D.C. than, you know, a, a grassroots voter somewhere else. It's only going to resonate with portion of the foreign policy establishment mm. even in that situation. Um, yeah, I'm – I I was left wondering just how we pay for it and why we do it. But definitely, we pay. For, the thing, the hard truth about deficit stuff is that it actually it, it doesn't matter that much. It, Dick Cheney was actually right when he said deficits don't matter uh, to a degree. Uh, the United States is never going to run out of dollars. We print the dollars ourselves. Um, you can't run out. Interest rates are at a near all time low, even after this horrible economic calamity where we spent a lot of money to try and get out of it. The danger from having a big deficit is that your interest rates get high and that, that that slows growth. That has not happened for years. I mean, it seems pretty clear that the spending limit for the United States is a lot higher than um, than what, you know, this sort of deficit hysterical – hysteria is a bad word. It's anti-feminist. But the, 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 the deficit, uh, you know, insanity. Gendered. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. It was mostly men screaming about the deficit. So we should be, be, be clear there because the economics profession is pretty sexist too. But all that aside – um, it's a dickless sort of hysteria. People were talking about not even I, that's gender. <laughs> I'm not even. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, but but people were talking about having a debt crisis. You know, three three or four years ago, people like Paul Ryan were saying, you know, we have a debt crisis. It's going to happen in a couple of years. We didn't come close to having a debt crisis. Not even close. So I, I don't think he has to worry about spending money from an economic uh, perspective on war. I think the United States has the ability to spend a lot of money based on our position in the global economy and our position in the global sort of foreign policy, military uh, uh, sort of stratosphere. Um, but 
he will have to practically deal with people asking him about it, especially after Republicans spent six or seven years just saying we can't afford to pay, you know, teachers or people who need, you know, poor people who need health insurance and things like that because whatever money is going to run out. I also think beyond money, uh, you know, it sometimes sounds appealing to say, yeah, we need to do something. I mean, the impulse when something terrible happens that we need to respond, I think, is understandable. But then when people think it through and like what the implications of that are, that we'll be sending, you know, people over to die and that sort of human cost of people that, you know, might be you know put in harm's way because of this. I think that that's something that, you know. <laughs> causes a little bit more problems um, yeah. down the line once you once you think through the implications of we're going to go to war everywhere. Do something quick fix and let's remember Iraq is like a weird nation that the British people the British empire drew boundaries around consigning three people to have to live with each other who don't like each other. We are always living with the legacy of weird stuff that happened after World War 1. Yep. So let's move let's move on to uh, another another uh thing that's been going on and that is uh our uh, our pal Elizabeth Warren has been having bud. having having meetings with various people. We'll start with the fact that like there's been some sort of like uh great summit between Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren, the woman who we think is probably running for president. And the woman who's not running for president, but who everybody thinks would be the foil to the woman, we're pretty sure is running for president, but we're not sure. Wait, so is Hillary Clinton considering running for president? I hadn't heard. Okay, that. so what do you think? What do you <laughs> think about whether Hillary Clinton's running? Yeah, for let's president. get let's 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 like finally get someone to answer the question. We picked you. Is Hillary Clinton running for president? Definitively, uh, <laughs> put it out there. I mean, Seriously, not currently. <laughs> this is like a, a roulette wheel where you get to vote. You get to put a chip down on red and black. In a technical sense, she is not running for president. Wow, that... I think she is probably going to run for president. Almost, almost definitely going to run for president. Right. Okay. So, so, so the, the distinction yeah. there about whether she's running or not that that it's there's a whole stupid. bunch of campaign finance law that that hinges on that, right? Like, yes. if you're running for president, you have to like whatever, put it in a newspaper and then stop talking to certain advisors <laughs> or something, right? No, it's important because like right now, okay, this is a lot of people don't don't understand. But far, we'll get back to meeting with Warren. But like right now, at the moment that Hillary Clinton, at this moment. Hillary Clinton is allowed to coordinate with super PACs because she's not an announced candidate. Mm -hmm. She could, if she wanted to, found a super PAC of her own, run it, hire people for it, create the infrastructure and the and the staff hierarchy for it. And then the day before she, you know, goes to the FEC and completes the magic ritual of like bonds and blood. Uh, whatever Game of Thrones shit you have to do at the FEC. She has to, to slaughter a goat. <laughs> just, just yeah. slaughter a goat. Yeah. Um, Little known fact about running for president. Right. Everyone has to kill one goat. Um, it's just, it's, it's why a lot of people choose not to run. It's a fact. And it's why goats, like, if you watch goats around presidential candidates, they're like, fuck that guy. They just faint. They just faint. They exactly. Dead. They back step away. and fall over. They faint. Uh, because because uh, you can't kill a goat, goat that's fainted. That's another I don't know why people don't understand these kind of like American. Right. This it's, is a, all, it's just a moral thing. Right. This is all Masonic shit that I don't know. You, you understand there's like pentagrams scrawled over DC. You know, that's, that's, it's all true. It's all true. I'm here to tell you everything you've heard about chemtrails is true. <laughs> Vaccinate right. your chemtrails. No, okay. People so, learn a lot on this podcast. <laughs> Seriously. I didn't yeah, realize. We are dropping knowledge, bad knowledge mostly. Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, but 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 prior to that moment where she does whatever it takes to become a candidate, she can do that. And after that moment, she can no longer coordinate with super PACs. I maintain that they all do anyway. But but it's the polite fiction we've we've decided to embark on when we talk about these super PACs. So it's so it's pretty significant. Like legally, it's significant. Philosophically, it's nonsense. Sh She's clearly running for president from a a, a a philosophical semantic level, and has been since like you know two thousand eight. Yeah, sure, sure. There's, yeah, there's, there's, there's no, there's, there's little d doubt about that. Um, but, you know, so this, for, for as long as I can remember people covering 2016, which started in 2014, even before maybe, people have talked about Elizabeth Warren as the person who could jump in the race and like hurt Hillary Clinton's chances. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's always been a little bit overblown. I've always thought that like people have been weird with Elizabeth Warren. Whenever she said, nah, I'm not running for president. Why well, are you kidding me? Uh, they're just like, well, she left the door open. She didn't right. say she would piss on the White House. <laughs> she, she, did, she said she's not running, but she didn't say right. for sure she would never run. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's all very like, please run. Please. I, I like, I like, <laughs> we really want you to. There was actually a report where someone wrote, Elizabeth Warren put the I am not running in the future tense. Like, she actually said, I will not run. And it was, like, a significant thing. It's like, she checked off a tense. Oh, my God. It's like, now she's got to, like, do past conditional. Unless the she problem is that what if she changed her mind, wouldn't she be allowed to say, no, nah, never mind, I want to run, if it was, like, April. Mitt Romney briefly seemed to be doing that, right? Yeah, exactly. He said, no, 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 however many times. What if, <laughs> that everyone, want to. what if everyone who could run for president on the Democratic side died in some kind of plague? And leaving her, we should be like, God, I really start. should run for president because <laughs> I'm the only one left. But I said I wouldn't, so I guess I can't. Uh, can we just also point out that if everybody on the Democratic side who could run for president died in a plague, that there would be way, way bigger issues than like who the next president would be? It would be- uh, how dare you? We're political reporters. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We need to focus. All campaigns. Sorry, sorry. All the time. So the significance of so the significance the big of, journalism meeting from last the week. The significance of Clinton meeting with Warren. I mean, I, I think it's real. I think it's I think it's a big deal. I mean, I, I, I think the the reason you know, bear in mind that Warren is not she doesn't think of herself as being terribly well versed in any issues except economic issues. She's she's kind of a one issue person. But on that on that stage, you know, she is the world's foremost expert in, you know, bankruptcy in the United States, for instance. Um, like she's actually the best leading academic in that. She really understands this stuff and she really does know how to talk to people about personal finance issues and make big picture technical financial Wall Street issues sound like something that matters to people at, at the kitchen table, um, to use another cliche that sure. political reporters always use. Um, so she's really, really good at communicating to people. And I, I think sometimes Clinton's people will say, well, look, they're, they're not that far away on, on most policy issues. And to some extent, that's true. But actually, the rhetoric kind of does matter in a political campaign because when you... Really? Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Wow. I know. It's crazy. Quit but, shocking us. But, but Hillary Clinton's not, not very good at talking populist, right? Like she, she had that sort of sort of uh, one of the dumbest gaffes that people flipped out about. The, the flip out about the gaffe I thought was really dumb where she said, you know, businesses don't create jobs. Uh, you know, she, she doesn't – she's not comfortable talking about populist things, whereas Elizabeth Warren just totally, totally gets it and doesn't screw up. Um, yeah. I mean Barack Obama too, like – tried to borrow a page from the old Warren playbook and ended up kind of bobbling it and then ending up getting stuck with that you didn't build that meme for like forever. Uh, it's like, so it's amazing. It's just like, I feel I feel like Democrats are, are, are kind of like trying to warm to Warren, kind of get some of that sauce. Well, and you've seen that happening for but a while, it's like, right? But it's the distillation kind of suffers once it's removed one body over. Yeah, but maybe you can get her... To come out and stump for you, right? And That's then true. You, and she's done. And that. you don't have to take one body over. You get the yeah, the real thing. And she's done that for people who you wouldn't ordinarily associate with Elizabeth Warren philosophically. Yeah, in Kentucky, she stumped for. Alison Lundergan and Grimes, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's not someone who I think probably their policy attitudes dovetail too finely. But she went out and she 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 sort of offered up that populist talk in a way that she can explain that a lot of people don't have the facility for. No, Warren's been very interesting because on the I think you know on the the Senate Banking Committee, for instance, um, I, I don't think she's done done a whole lot. Uh, Within the committee that has that has you know, moved legislation, it's very hard to do, particularly when you're, uh, you're not, now that she's in, in the minority. Um, you know, but but in the on the national stage, I think she's done quite a bit to shape the the Democratic Party's messaging on economic issues. Um, you can see her being being. I mean, the fact that she got a leadership position after basically attacking the Clinton economic team, who is also Obama's economic team. For like you know her whole professional career and political career, right? But but after after attacking that economic team for like her whole professional and political career, um, I mean pretty mercilessly. I mean she really hammered Tim Geithner when he was Treasury Secretary, and after all of that, she's she's now in a position of leadership where she's she's working with Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid all the time. Um, That that to me I think is is really striking, Um, and it shows that she's that, that that she is very good at tailoring the national message and and getting getting the big picture policy ideas for the Democrats uh, you know, on the table. I think as a, as a you know, fighting it out legislator, 
uh, you know, she she hasn't she hasn't been quite as effective. Um, but she doesn't need to be if if the if the whole party platform is is shifting because of what she's saying. What about uh, now? What about Elizabeth Warren and Janet Yellen? I mean, both of these meetings, right? The, we we, we got a report meeting. that there that there were meetings. You know, so she met with Hillary Clinton, and what did they talk about? Policy, and it was cordial. And Hillary did not ask uh, Warren for an endorsement. So they talked about policy. I mean, okay. So to, to be them, to be just to be clear, Hillary Warren is a signatory on a letter of other female senators endorsing Hillary Clinton. That people forget that saying that she's cool. Yeah, uh, Janet Yellen also. I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren played a pretty significant role in in uh, in getting Janet Yellen to the Fed. So really, I, I definitely think so. I mean, look, the reason Janet Yellen did not ultimately the reason Larry Summers did not get nominated um, formally nominated, even though Obama made very clear that he wanted to nominate Larry Summers. Um, is because he didn't have the votes on the Senate Banking Committee to get them through, and so there was a core of there was a core of Democrats: Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, Jeff Merkley, who recruited other Democrats and made sure that those votes weren't there. I mean, I think there was a pretty significant media campaign. I think a lot of women's organizations were upset with Larry Summers because he said horribly sexist things in the past. There a lot of people don't like Larry Summers because he doesn't seem to be a very nice manager. Um, all that helped, but the real reason it, the the you know, Obama was still pushing through throughout all of that. He was taking that heat, but when he didn't have the votes, he had to drop the nomination. Um, so I think I think you, you can I think Elizabeth Warren and and Jeff Merkley and Sherrod Brown played a huge role in making sure that the current Fed chairman is is who she is. Um, so it's not crazy that they would meet. Uh, but again, what, what we have is an article on the Hill saying that they met in December. And what did they talk about? We don't know. Um, my guess is they talked about economic policy because that's what both of them do. Uh, and they probably talked about economics, particularly banking economics. Well, what, let me ask you this then. Um... Uh, how can you, you, you talked about how Elizabeth Warren's overall sort of like philosophy is helping to shape the democratic message. In what way could Elizabeth Warren's overall philosophy perhaps shape what the Fed does? It's really tough to say. Um, and does, is it, would you imagine that Elizabeth Warren has an objection with current Federal Reserve policy? I would be surprised if she objected to the monetary policy that the Fed has been pursuing, quantitative easing, which has been a program in place basically to where the government buys up a lot of – essentially the Fed buys a lot of government debt from the U.S. in order to keep interest rates lower. Um, I, I think she's probably on board with that, um, maybe having it more targeted in, in certain ways. That that seems like something that – I've never heard Elizabeth Warren say anything that was you know critical of that. Um, on the regulatory side, I think the Fed has been better over the last few years than it had been, say, 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, the Fed was really bad 10 years ago, and we had the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression uh, as a result. So that's a, kind of a low bar being better. I'm sure there are a lot of regulatory issues where, where Warren is, is taking issue with, with what's going on at the Fed. And I think the internal politics of the Fed... Janet Yellen has her hands full just getting the monetary policy stuff through that she doesn't really have a lot of political uh, capital available to to push through the regulatory stuff on the on the other side. And and the Fed is also undermanned. There aren't the, the, there's a, a formal slot available on the Federal Reserve that was created after the financial crisis for someone who oversees regulation. That seat has just never been filled. Um, we just have never actually put somebody in that chair, which is kind of maddening. It's insane, actually. It's completely nuts. Um, the Fed is the most important economic institution in the world, and and its board of governors has has had empty seats for years now. That's that is should be totally intolerable. But it's it's this thing that we just sort of take take for granted. It's like, oh yeah, well the the Republicans are not going to let anybody through, so uh, why don't we just not worry about it? Where's Warren on this audit the Fed movement? So that's really interesting. Um, yeah, the, Thank you. The Fed. You. I thought it was a pretty great, great question. question. Yeah, good job. Way to go, Jason. Yeah, you know, Rand Paul, uh, like his dad, is is a big Fed basher and wants to audit the Fed because he wants it to be democratically accountable. He's got this weird idea that you know the, the operations of the most important economic institution in the world should be transparent, um, and that has actually been something that has gotten a lot of uh, a lot of bipartisan support in the past. Although every time you talk about adding, increasing the transparency of the Fed, everybody inside says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's going to cause total politicization of this process. Everything's going to shut down. We're going to be, you know, the, the whole monetary policy thing won't work anymore. Grass is going to grow in the streets. Bridges are going to collapse. Every, you know, the, the world will end. Um, and 
the sky never falls when this happens. They, you know, they, they used to not publish transcripts of the Monetary Policy Committee's meetings. Now they publish those with a, with a delay. Um, we audited the, the, uh, the activities, the bailout activities that the Fed participated in, in the crisis. Um, and there were Democrats who, who, who got behind that. I mean, Alan Grayson on the, uh, on the House side and then Bernie Sanders on the Senate side. And the House bill actually included the language that's currently in the, uh, the, 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 the Rand Paul bill that's, that's been put forward. The, the Fed does get audited. And if it ever does you know, emergency lending stuff again, that will be audited too as a result of the Dodd-Frank law. Uh, but it, it's monetary policies, operations don't get audited, and it's, uh, its interactions with foreign central banks don't get audited. So those are big issues, especially with what's going on in Greece and, and the European Central Bank right now. But uh, Elizabeth Warren has actually opposed this, uh, this bill from Rand Paul to, to audit this information. And, the, and it's, not, it's not just Warren, also Sherrod Brown, uh, who is you know, another sort of financial reform advocate on the, uh, on the banking committee. And I think some, some people were really surprised by this, but there is a significant wing of the sort of liberal econo-dork intelligentsia, which says all, that, all you're going to get from this type of audit is, is, uh, is, is information that empowers kind of hard money cranks. And what they mean is actually people like, like Rand Paul who want to essentially not do any of the things that Janet Yellen has been doing for the past couple of years at the Fed and that this will ultimately damage the economy if these people are allowed to yell about it. Um, I've always thought that argument is kind of silly because, yeah, they will use this to yell at the Fed, but they already yell at the Fed. I mean, Janet Yellen shows up each year and has to give a hearing and these people say completely crazy loony things to, to her. And then she goes back and does her job. It's all part of my hit, hit sitcom in development, Yellen at Yellen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> got a huge potential audience of like 12. Foley will give you the last word on this. <laughs> Janet Yellen? Um, all right. <laughs> you came to the right person. Um, I think everything Zach said sounded great and smart. And uh, we will see what happens. How's that? That was so that that was awesome. Tinged with professionalism, it's what Thank we ex- what we expect. Okay, so thanks for listening. I'm Jason Lincolns with Elise Foley and Zach Carter. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki, with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta and Adriana Usero. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Huffington Post senior politics reporter Zach Carter and Elise Foley. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Check us out in the iTunes store and look for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe willy-nilly and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thank you very much for listening. We miss you already. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.